Our blessed Father, we earnestly ask of you now, as we reopen your holy word, that as it goes forth through the means of teaching and preaching, that it will not go forth in vain, but that it will be proclaimed by the convincing power of the blessed Spirit of God and heard by that same convincing power. That your saints today would be greatly illuminated with greater truth proceeding forth from your word, built up in their most holy faith and more well-equipped for greater and more effectual service, Lord, unto you as the church of Christ Jesus our Lord. These petitions we lift before your throne of grace, asking in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, the head of the church, our Redeemer and Savior. For his sake, amen. Well, I invite you to take the word of God this morning, and let's turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to begin reading at verse 7 to verse 11. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 7 to verse 11. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And so reads the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, certain and sure word of the living God. Have you ever wondered what kind of priority God places on the unity of his people? Consider this, when Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer for the church as recorded in John chapter 17, our Lord pitched the unity of his people as one of the chief petitions he brought before the Father. In John chapter 17 verses 20 through 23, Jesus prayed in our behalf, I do not ask for these only, speaking of the apostles, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, 
that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. This petition for church unity has many things to teach us. Let's ponder just a few. First of all, it matters intensely to Christ that his people be united. If we just think of all the things Christ could have prayed in our behalf on the night preceding his crucifixion, yet what was most on our Lord's heart concerning his church was, in fact, the unity of his people. This point alone should cause us all to examine how much of a priority the unity of the church is in our own hearts and minds. Second of all, the unity of the church is the outworking of their union with Christ. This is a spiritual unity which has no origin in man but is purely born of God by his working to unite all the elect in Christ. Third of all, the unity of the church is a witness to the world concerning why Christ came. When Christians are living out this unity they have together in Christ, it gives proof to the world of what Jesus was sent to do, to save his people from their sins. Applying this prayer for unity to the church as a whole, consider these most earnest and sobering words of J.C. Ryle. Let the recollection of this part of Christ's prayer abide in our minds and exercise a constant influence on our behavior as Christians. Let no man think lightly, as some men seem to do, of schism, or count it a small thing to multiply sects and parties. These very things we may depend only help the devil and damage the cause of Christ. If it be possible, as much as it depends on you, let us live peaceably with all men. As Romans 12, 18 so says, let us bear much then, concede much, and put up with much before we plunge into secessions and separations. They are movements in which there is often much false fire. Let rabid zealots who delight in sect-making and party-forming rail at us and denounce us if they please. We need not mind them. So long as we have Christ in a good conscience, let us patiently hold on our way, following the things that make for peace and strive to promote unity. It was not for nothing that our Lord prayed so fervently that his people might be one. Well, with this in mind, I want us to return this morning to our study in the first half of Ephesians chapter 4 and its very specific teaching on Christian unity. This theme in Ephesians covers the first 16 verses in chapter 4. In our previous study of this passage, we considered only the first six verses that called our attention to the practical implications of keeping Christian unity. We saw three principal truths that helped us in this holy endeavor. First... There is the character that keeps Christian unity. This is in verses 1 and 2. And here we looked at four virtues of Christian character that always work together 
in bringing Christian unity. They are humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Where these graces are absent, no external structure of unity can stand in the local church. So as Christians, therefore, we must be a people called by God in Christ, giving ourselves to treating each other with all humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearing love. As I said last week, I say it again today, where these graces are strong, there will be the visible demonstration of our unity in Christ. Secondly, we saw the cause that creates Christian unity. This is what we read in verses 4 through 6, where there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The primary point of this passage was to teach us that true Christian unity arises from the unity we see in the eternal God. In other words, the perfect unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit actually creates and gives birth to the unity that is present and should thereby be visible among fellow Christians. Finally, we unpacked the charge to keep Christian unity. This exhortation we saw spelled out in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What this single text showed us were three facts about keeping Christian unity. First of all, it is a unity already created by the Holy Spirit that we're to maintain. Second of all, by maintaining the unity of the Spirit, our attitude and actions are to be characterized as eager. This means that we spare no effort, but with all zeal we guard and keep the unity created by the Spirit that every Christian shares in because of our union with Christ. Third of all, we keep the unity created by the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is, by the peace which binds us together, we maintain the unity of the Spirit. But what is this peace? Well, it's not a what, but a who. The peace that binds us together as the church is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. As we're told plainly in Ephesians 2.14, Christ is our peace who has made us one. So in Christ, we make every effort to keep the unity we already have by the Holy Spirit. All of this sums up the teaching of Ephesians 4 verses 1 through 6. But now in our study for this morning, we'll begin to unpack verses 7 through 16. As we look at what I'm calling diversity in unity leading to maturity. Listen to that again. Diversity in unity leading to maturity. One of the most important realities about Christian unity is that it's not uniformity. It's not uniformity. The one body of Christ is very diverse. It is very diverse. Diverse not only in a natural sense, but particularly diverse in the way God has gifted all for service to each other. This was John R. W. Stott's point as he opened up his own exposition of our present text. 
Stott wrote, Although there is only one body, one faith, and one family, this unity is not to be misconstrued as a lifeless or colorless uniformity. We are not to imagine that every Christian is an exact replica of every other as if we had all been mass-produced in some celestial factory. On the contrary, the unity of the church, far from being boringly monotonous, is exciting in its diversity. This is not just because of our different cultures, temperaments, and personalities, but because of the different gifts which Christ distributes for the enrichment of our common life. So then, as we continue with this theme of Christian unity, Paul moves us from the general call of keeping it to understanding the spiritual components given by God to make it work for the greater growth of the church as a whole. From this passage then, in Ephesians chapter 4, 7 through 16, I want us to see first that Christian unity is enhanced by our spiritual diversity, and second, Christian unity is married to our spiritual maturity. Our focus today will only center on the first of these two points. So let's seek to understand. Christian unity is enhanced by our spiritual diversity. Look in the at verses 7 through 11 once again. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. If we look at verses 7 through 11 as a whole, what we're clearly being taught is that one of the blessings of Christ's ascension following his resurrection, was that he gave gifts to men. The gifts referred to in verse 8 are spelled out in verse 7 and exemplified in verse 11 as spiritual gifts. And this spiritual gifting works to serve every member in the body of Christ, magnifying the unity we have as the church. Now, in verse 7, Paul begins this teaching with a general statement regarding the gifts every Christian has received from Christ. He writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Having just written about the truth of our unity as the one body with one hope, one faith, and one baptism, Paul then turns our attention to the unique diversity within our unity. But what he presses on us to see is our, is our diversity in relation to Christ's distribution of grace. The term grace in this context is not the saving grace of God per se, but Christ's enabling power that makes the gifts he gives function by 
his design to bring edification and growth to the church. And this empowering grace of Christ, Paul tells us, is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. What does that mean? It means that empowering grace is measured out to be consistent with what is necessary for the operation of Christ's gift. And this gift of Christ is referring to the spiritual gifts. He has chosen to distribute to each member of his church. So understand this. No single Christian misses out on receiving a gift from Christ. Hear that again. No single Christian misses out on receiving a gift from Christ. This is why Paul emphasizes that this enabling grace was given to each one of us. Each one of us. Thus, within the unity of the body, each member has a distinctive service to render for the effective working of the whole. There's therefore no Christian who can honestly say, I have no service to give to the church. Such an idea, such a claim, is simply untrue because it cannot be supported by Scripture. Here in Ephesians 4, in verse 7, such a claim is, of course, de denied. And we see it also denied in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 10. Listen to this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we've all been gifted by Christ to serve each other through the grace given to each one of us for that service. But to look a little further at what Paul is teaching in verse 7, we need to understand that Christ has measured out the exact proportion of each believer's gift. In other words, everything we need to serve the body of Christ by the gift he has given us, we have that gift in full measure. We have that gift in full measure. There is nothing lacking for any Christian with whatever gift the Lord has graced them with for serving fellow believers. The only time we would see a lack in service would be when we're trying to do what Christ has actually not gifted us to do. And saying this naturally raises the practical question. Well, what is the gift which the Lord has given me? What is the gift the Lord has given me? I'll answer this question only briefly as an excursion because this is, this is not the thrust of what we're being taught here in Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. But, but the question, this question is important. It is important and it should be answered, if only in a very few words. To know or discover the gift Christ has given us, there are four suggestions I'll offer. And these, each of these suggestions I have gleaned from James Montgomery Boyce in his own exposition of this text. First, begin by studying what the Bible has to say about spiritual gifts. Specifically, go to Romans chapter 12, 6 through 8. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 8 through 10 and 28 through 30. Or, as will be 
today in Ephesians 4.11 or 1 Peter 4.11. So study what the Bible has to say about spiritual gifts. Secondly, and here's a great novel idea, pray. You must pray. Spiritual gifts come from Christ. He is sovereign in his dispensing of them. So then if we're to know what he has gifted us to do in service to the body, then we need to ask the head of the body to show us. To show us what that gift is. Thirdly, make a sober assessment of your spiritual strengths and abilities. Make a sober assessment of your spiritual strengths and abilities. No, this is not a personality test. I said spiritual, spiritual strengths and abilities. Such an assessment should only be made after we have searched the scriptures and sought the Lord in prayer. Otherwise, we will be misled. But if we have God's word guiding us through study and prayer, then here's what we should ask ourselves. Okay, here's the question. What do I like to do in service to the church? But then here's the next question. And this is actually more more important. And what am I good at? That is, where is God most blessing my efforts in relation to the church? Now, I'm going to repeat that. Where is God most blessing my efforts in relation to the church? That question will help you a lot in assessing your spiritual strengths and abilities. Fourthly, and here, this this last suggestion is one that is often not taken. Seek the wisdom of other Christians where your gifts are concerned. Seek the wisdom of other Christians where your gifts are concerned. Listen, discovering the gift Christ has given us is not purely subjective. It's not just about what you think it is and that it it, it ends there. No. (laughs) No, 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 that's... No, it's more than that. Because these gifts are for the edification of the church. Okay, get that. It's for the edification of the church. Then other Christians will be able to see and discern what the Lord has gifted us to do. And more often than not, we'll be surprised as to what fellow believers may observe about our giftedness. But... We need to make ourselves available to listen and be teachable as to what other Christians would tell us if asked the question, what do you think my spiritual gift is? That is really important. Because again, these gifts that Christ gives According to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, they are for the common good of the church. So it's not about you as an individual. It, 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 it's, you know, it's not about what it says about you or what it makes you, etc., etc. No. Okay? It's not that. It's for the common good of the church, for the edification of the church. So 
It's important then to be raising the question to the church, to be looking to your church family and asking them, well, what do you think? Because it takes an objective consideration, not purely a subjective consideration. You got to have both, not just one. So very important. Okay, leaving this brief excursion. Let's come back to our study, back to our text here in Ephesians 4. What we've seen up to this point is that in verse 7, Paul is making a general statement concerning how every Christian is enabled by grace to serve the church as a whole with whatever gift Christ has chosen to give them. But as we move on into verses 8 through 10, Paul pulls us back to see a bigger picture in God's redemptive plan as to why it is the Lord Jesus Christ who holds the right to give his church such gifts. Verses 8 through 10, we read this. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying... He ascended. What does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. In this passage, Paul is drawing a line from Psalm 68 verse 18 where God is pictured as marching in triumph before all Israel after the exodus. The psalm describes how Mount Sinai trembled and kings were scattered as God rescued his people and vindicated them. Then, desiring Mount Zion as his abode, the Lord came from Sinai to his holy place and ascended the high mount, leading a host of captives in his train. Applying this picture in Psalm 68 to the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul connects it to the ascension of Christ. Because when the Lord Jesus ascended back to the Father, following his humiliation, he did so as a conqueror. He did so as a conqueror, where in his train he led a host of captives, being the principalities and powers he had defeated, dethroned, and disarmed. But in, his, but in this triumph, Christ has made his church to be partakers in the spoil he has received. Hence, we're told that the Lord gave gifts to men. So then the right or authority which Christ exercises to give, to give gifts to men is due to his exaltation, i.e. his ascension, to God's right hand as victor over all. But what gifts has our Lord given his church? What gifts? Well, Answering this question in the very strict and immediate context of Ephesians chapter 4, we turn to verse 11. And in this passage, we see a particular kind of spiritual gifting. We read this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, 
the shepherds and teachers. What we have in Ephesians 4.11 is obviously not an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. Rather, in this verse is a list of gifted persons who are in fact the gifts Christ has given to his church to do one very specific act of service. They are to teach and preach the word of God. In other words, Ephesians 4.11 is revealing the function of what Sinclair Ferguson called the word gifts. The word gifts. But how do these word gifts function specifically in service to the church? Well, to begin with, the apostles and prophets, two separate word gifts, have served the church from the beginning as the church's foundation, preaching and teaching what would become the New Testament scriptures. Their ministry, therefore, and this is critical, their ministry, therefore, was a once-for-all gift, never to be repeated again once the canon of the New Testament was finished. This fact, however, doesn't mean that the church is no longer served by the ministry of the apostles and prophets, while there is no longer the flesh and blood ministry of men who are called by Christ as his apostles and prophets, yet every time the New Testament scripture is read and preached and taught as it is this morning, the ministry of the apostles and prophets continues to bear witness of Christ edifying the church. The third word gift Paul mentions are the evangelists. The evangelists. These gifted men are still presently given to the church as those especially called by Christ to proclaim the gospel. They are men like Philip in Acts chapter 8, verses 40 through 40, whose efforts were designed and crafted by Christ to proclaim the good news of the gospel to those who had never heard. Expanding on this example of Philip, John MacArthur wrote this, Philip demonstrates that the evangelist is not a man with ten suits and ten sermons who runs a roadshow. New Testament evangelists were missionaries and church planters, much like the apostles but without the title and miraculous gifts, who went where Christ was not named and led people to faith in the Savior. They then taught the new believers the word, built them up, and moved on to new territory. So let me ask you this. Is there still a need today for the evangelists? Are there still unreached people groups in the world? Well, we know there is because we have looked and studied the 1040 window. Yes. Yes. There are vast territories where Jesus Christ has never been named. Vast territories. So the church still needs evangelists for its edification and growth, gifted men who are very uniquely set apart by Christ to reach the lost with the saving gospel, but in reaching the lost, 
in being used by Christ to bring sinners to close with Christ in conversion, those evangelists are also church planters. And you see that most especially in the Apostle Paul, who was an apostle, but he was also an evangelist par excellence. The last word gift in Ephesians 4.11 may appear, reading it in the English, this may appear to be two gifts, but in reality it's only one. We read in the English, the shepherds and teachers. In the original Greek, however, the word teachers is without the definite article, thus putting it in a grammatical construction that is characterizing what kind of shepherds Christ gives to his church. Jesus gives to his church men who are teaching shepherds. Teaching shepherds. Thus the shepherds and teachers are in fact pastor teachers. Pastor teachers. Pastor hyphen teachers. It is therefore teaching which is the most fundamental characteristic in the role of Pastors. This is why in the biblical qualification of elders who are in fact pastors, the only function, the only function they are divinely required to do, although it's not all that they do, but this is the only one that's required if they're to be qualified, is to teach the word of God. The only function they are biblically required if they're to be biblically qualified to do, is to teach the word of God. There is no responsibility higher in the role of pastors than the ministry of God's word through teaching and preaching because, listen, because this is how the pastor feeds God's sheep. This is how he does that. The English Puritan John Owen he had much to say on this point. I want you to consider Owen's bold but biblical assertions as to the top priority of pastors preaching and teaching God's word. This comes from Owen's book, The Church and the Bible. John Owen wrote this. He said, the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by diligent preaching of the word. This Feeding is of the essence of the office of a pastor so that he who does not or cannot or will not feed the flock is no pastor. Whatever outward call or work he may have in the church. This work and duty, therefore, as we said, is essential unto the office of a pastor. A man, now listen to this because I'm going to repeat it again in a few moments, but listen to this statement. A man is a pastor unto them whom he feeds by pastoral teaching and to no more. And he that does not so feed is no pastor. Now, Owen has more to say. Obviously, I'm emphasizing that last statement. Nor, he writes, is it required only that he preach now and then at his leisure, but that he lay aside all other employments, though lawful, all other duties in the church, as unto such a constant attendance on them would divert him from this work 
that he give himself unto it, that he be in these things laboring to the utmost of his ability. Without this, no man will be able to give a comfortable account of the pastoral office at the last day. Oh, you mean men who serve as pastors like me are going to have to answer to Christ at the last day for what we did as pastors? Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, yes. Given an account. Beloved, how tragic and sad it is. How very tragic and sad it is. In our day, there are so many men called pastors who do not see the ministry of God's word as their highest priority and calling. They don't. They see themselves either as CEOs of religious corporations or as hospital chaplains whose only service is to visit the sick. They really don't believe what Ephesians 4.11 calls them. If they are in fact legitimately that, truly called by God, teaching shepherds. They don't see that. Not at all. But let me tell you something even worse than that. There are multiple churches who do not want pastors serving as Christ has gifted them to serve in the ministry of preaching and teaching. The first two churches I pastored would absolutely fit in this category to a T. The people in those two congregations, and obviously not every single one of them, okay, there were a few, a minority, there was a little tiny remnant of believers who understood what my role in office and calling was by Christ, but they were the minority, the remnant, okay? The majority, the vast majority in those, in those congregations said without shame, and they said it to me, without shame. They didn't care about having a pastor who could preach God's word. They just wanted a pastor who would visit. And that is verbatim what they said to me. And you wonder why I'm not still serving in either of those two churches. In other words, understand what, what, what those people were saying. What those very foolish, ignorant, self-deceived people were saying. They were saying they did not want to be fed the word of God. But as John Owen rightly said, and I quote him again, a man is a pastor unto them whom he feeds by pastoral teaching and to no more. And he that does not so feed is no pastor. No pastor. Where would John Owen get such a, an idea like that? How could he make such an assertion like that? Well, right here in Ephesians 4.11. Christ gave gifts to men, and among those gifts, the Lord Jesus gave teaching shepherds. This is the gift of the pastor. Teaching shepherds. Now, in comparison to the evangelists, the pastor teachers serve the church more directly, 
in a settled ministry of nurturing God's people on a very steady diet of God's word. Pastor teachers are not evangelists, though they will preach the gospel and seek to bring sinners to Christ, as you have seen me demonstrate right here from this sacred desk many, 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 many times. Their ministry, the ministry of the pastor, is fixed primarily on shepherding God's flock that is placed in their charge. This is why the apostle Peter exhorted the church elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That is among you. This is where the gift of the pastor functions by the design of Christ. He ministers the word of God to God's people brought under his care by God's providence. So among all the spiritual gifts which Christ has given to his church, there is this special little group we could call the word gifts. These are men whom our Lord has called and set apart and empowered by his grace to serve the church in one singular capacity. They minister God's word through teaching and preaching. At one time, they were the apostles and prophets who laid down the foundation of the church via the New Testament scriptures. But now, now they are the evangelists and the teaching shepherds who... On one hand, preach the gospel and plant churches, that's the evangelists, and on the other hand, settle into churches for the duration of a regular ministry of preaching and teaching God's word. Well, in drawing this study to a close, there are three principal lessons I want us to take away this morning from Ephesians 4, 7 through 11. Three principal lessons, and they are listed right there in the bulletin so you can follow right along. Lesson number one, God designed different gifts to serve the common good of the church as a whole. God designed different gifts to serve the common good of the church as a whole. This is what Paul reminded the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Listen to this. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. The manifestation of the Spirit is that spiritual gift. It's that spiritual gift. That's the manifestation of the Spirit why is it given? It's given for the common good of the church. So as diverse, as diverse as our gifting and service is by the call of God, yet no single Christian, and listen to this because this is so countercultural to broad evangelicalism, no single Christian is meant to be a maverick and do his own thing to build up his own name. What am I saying there? Well, very plain. There are no celebrities in the body of Christ. There are no celebrities in the body of Christ. 
Rather, the truth is, because we're joined together as members of the one body of Christ, God has willed the variety of our gifts to serve the one body for the good of everyone. And when this is carried out in faithfulness in a local church, our unity, our oneness as God's people is magnified. Lesson number two. Where we serve the church with our giftedness is God's choice, not ours. Where we serve the church with our giftedness is God's choice, not ours. This is spelled out very clearly in 1 Corinthians 12, 18. Listen to this. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. As he chose. What has Christ gifted you to do for the common good of the church? Where has he called you to serve? Beloved, whatever our gift is, wherever our service is called for, called for to build up the body of Christ, we should be both grateful and content with God's sovereign arrangement of our place in his church. We're gifted to serve the body of Christ by the infinite wisdom and holy pleasure of God himself. It is his choice. It's his choice. It is his call. His, his choice, his call. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 18. It's as he chose. As he chose where you serve in the body. And the last principle lesson, which is being drawn from Ephesians 4.11, we should thank God for the gifted men he has chosen to teach and preach his word to us. We should thank God for the gifted men he has chosen to teach and preach his word to us. Whether it is men who have long been gone, but still minister the word through their writings, or those still with us whom God has placed in our lives to feed us his word. In either case, in either case, every Christian has much to be thankful for if, if they have been blessed by God with faithful ministers who nourish them by God's word. We need to remember, we need to remember that such men like this are God's gifts to the church. That's right. They're God's gifts to the church. So I am not making an arrogant statement. I am God's gift to this church. Well, and as a matter of fact, I am. <laughs> but, uh, but, but Ephesians 4.11 gives me the authority to say that. It gives me the authority to say that. Because the teaching shepherd is Christ's gift to the church. So due to that fact... They should therefore be treated, listen closely, they should be treated with the esteem and honor which that reality calls for as spelled out in 1 Thessalonians 5.13. Listen to this. This is a command to you, the church member. 1 Thessalonians 5.13. Esteem them, them referring to pastor teachers in this context, esteem them, very highly, 
in love because of their work. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So the word of God in 1 Thessalonians 5.13 says to, to the gathered church, to the church member, pastors are to be esteemed very highly. Very highly means, as a matter of fact, beyond measure, but for what? What is it for? Is it their personality? No. Is it their stature? No. Is it their education? No. Well, then what? What are they to be esteemed beyond measure for? 1 Thessalonians 5.13 says that pastors are to be regarded highly because of their work. Because of their work. Which, of course, is chiefly the faithful teaching and preaching of God's holy word. And the attitude of such high regard for the under-shepherd of Christ is always, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.13, it's always in love. It is in love. This is what God has commanded. This is what he has commanded and therefore expects to be the proper treatment of his servants who labor to bring his word to his church. And beloved, let me... Let me do say this as a footnote. While the work of pastoring is more than what I'm doing right here, right now, okay? You know that. I know that. It's more than that, a lot more to it. But nothing, absolutely nothing, supersedes this, the preaching and teaching of God's word. Nothing supersedes it. Nothing takes priority over me as the man of God called by God to preach the word of God. Nothing takes priority over that. Nothing. Because if I were to begin to let other things take priority over feeding you the word of God, then guess what? Biblically, you could not call me a pastor. You could not call me a pastor. Biblically. I've ceased being a pastor. Maybe I've been maybe I'm I'm taking on other roles, other things, but I can't be scripturally called a pastor. If the main focus, the main drive of everything I'm doing here for you is the preaching and teaching of God's holy word. Well, how then do we draw a conclusion to everything that we've heard this morning from Ephesians 4, 7 through 11? Let me just leave you with this. Let us be grateful to God for all he has given us by his appointment, by his arrangement in the body of Christ. Let us be grateful to God for that. Every member... In the body of Christ, every member matters, okay? Every member matters because every gift matters. Every gift matters. Since all the gifts, all these manifestations of the Spirit are all designed by Christ 
to work together for the greater growth of the whole. And so we should be, we should be very thankful for the way the Lord has designed his church, his body to work. And that not a single one of you, not a single one of you who are Christians are without that spiritual gift. You're not without the manifestation of the spirit that God has designed, appointed, arranged for you to have to serve. To serve him, to serve the church. You have a gift from the Lord. If you don't know what it is, and I would dare say that there probably are most, most, not few, but most saints here, you don't really know as of yet. What is that? Well, begin to pray. Ask the Lord. Lord, show me. Open my eyes to see this by the guidance of his word, by the assessment of your own spiritual strengths and how you tend to bless the church the most and what you do in service to the church, but then also by the objective, the objective consideration of the body of Christ that knows you and is with you. And what, what do they say? What did they see? Beloved, this is important. This is very important. God has not given you that gift for you not to use. He's not given you that gift not to use. So you need to use it to serve the body for the common good that glorifies Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are most thankful, Lord, for every member in the body of Christ, every sinner you have saved by the person and the work of your Son through the power of the Holy Spirit who has placed each regenerate man and woman in the body of Christ. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all true fellow Christians. And we further thank you, Lord, for the gifts, these manifestations of the Spirit as your word describes them, that you've given to each and every member in the body of Christ. And Lord, we ask that for any of us here today that are simply without the knowledge, without the understanding of knowing, of recognizing, well, what is it the Lord has actually gifted me to do in service to the church? Holy Father, we earnestly pray that you will open the eyes of your dear saints here who've yet to come to that knowledge and understanding. We pray also, Lord, that you'll open the eyes of the rest of us to see and to behold what manifestations of the Spirit are in these fellow Christians that we're gathered together with here at Providence so that we'll be able to help one another see 
and discover rightly what that, what that biblical authorized gift is of the Spirit. We look to you, Lord, for such an illumination. And we do this for the common good of your church. Ultimately, for the sake of Christ, the head of the church. In his name, we pray. Amen.